If we asked you for your definition of success, what would you say? For us, it's simple. Success is unique to each and every one of us. Welcome to The Success Revolution, the podcast that's changing the way we talk and think about success. We're The Step Up Club. I'm Alice. And I'm Fenella. And we're on a mission to get every single one of you feeling successful, no matter what that success looks like to you. In today's episode, we speak to the outspoken Cosmo editor, Farah Dor, who talks about the unconventional career advice she got from a member of Blur, her decision not to have any children, why stress is actually a success booster, and why editing Cosmo is way more risky than you might think. Alice, we absolutely loved interviewing Farah. We did. What do you do think about her definition of success? I thought her definition of success was really interesting because she immediately made it really granular. So she talked about success as a daily concept rather than this big cloud sometimes that hangs over us or this unicorn we sometimes describe it as this fleeting, unattainable concept. She really drills down into success as something that you can assess at the end of her day. And she talks about what she thinks about in bed and whether her day has been successful based on really quite simple metrics. What did you think? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's really an inspiring idea because we all, we talk about this a lot, but you can go through your life aspiring to this massive version of success. And actually, if you break it down the way that she did, I think that's really empowering because you automatically can assess your success on a day-to-day basis. And you're not paralysed by it, which I think so many of us are. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing that I really liked about her definition of success and certainly the way that she viewed herself was this mix that she had or that we felt she had between real power and presence but also vulnerability. We talked about this afterwards. It was something, and this comes out in the conversation we have, that she developed through her career. So she started off having to really be quite powerful and then over time she's gradually brought that vulnerability back in, the vulnerability she had as a young girl. And I think that's really inspiring because as women, when we look at somebody, you know, she's in a position of real power. She's got a massive job. She has lots of people reporting to her. She's really, you know, an exposed, relatively public figure. We don't think about vulnerability and openness and softness being necessarily part of that. And she really does make that part of who she is. And that's inspiring when you think about success as a leader. She also makes that transition, I think, that transition of, as you'll hear in the podcast, she starts off as a very shy child. She rejected who she really was to be this tough, ballsy woman. And then, as you say, she's reintegrated it. But actually, it was the process of going through that, which I think led her to the idea for the book, because I think it was obviously very uncomfortable for her to push herself into that zone of being really ballsy and not actually feeling that comfortable in that position. And then... When she arrived at Cosmo, she says 80% of her employees left because they didn't like the way that she led. And so we actually coined a new word, discomfortable, but like how discomfortable that must have felt for her. And that must have been one of the turning points for her and also the instigators of this book, which we love the idea of, because we talk a lot about failure and failing fast. And her idea for the book really builds on that. So it isn't just about failing, but it's about opening yourself up to those times she calls them brief moments of discomfort because when you allow those brief moments of discomfort into your life those are the times that you have real learnings and that you become more resilient and that you really learn about yourself and I think she's a product today of her own advice I think which is brilliant 
Anyway, enough of us discussing it. We are shortly to get on to the interview. But first, we just want to remind you that this is our first ever episode of the podcast of the Success Revolution. So if you like what you hear, please, please leave us a review wherever you're listening and tell your friends to listen too. For the record, our joint definition of success includes a hefty dose of women supporting women. That's why we decided not to have a sponsor. Instead, each episode will be in support of one of our favorite charities, one that helps women in a vital way. Today's episode is recorded in support of Nikki Smile, an amazing charity set up by the brother of a close friend of both of ours after the death of his wife from pancreatic cancer. Nikki was just 33 when she died, leaving behind her husband, Dan, and her three-year-old son, Joshua. Despite it being the fifth most common cause of cancer deaths, pancreatic cancer is hugely under-researched massively underfunded and difficult to diagnose. Nikki's Smile raises vital funds to further early diagnosis research. Find out how to help at nikkismile.com. All the info is in the show notes. But now, on with the interview. Farah Storr is one of the country's most talented journalists. As editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan magazine, a position that she's held for three years now, she put the much-loved Glossy back at the top of the circulation tables. And in the process, she has restored Cosmopolitan's reputation for making bold statements, having journalistic bravery, and being able to use humour and style to bind the package together. Before Cosmo, Farah was the launch editor of Women's Health magazine. And despite being a pioneering new title in uncharted magazine territory, after its first year, Women's Health was hailed by by industry experts as the most successful women's magazine launch for a decade. Congratulations on that. As well as her day job, yes, this woman is a multifaceted talent. Farah is also a prolific public speaker and has just published her first book, The Discomfort Zone, which we both have read and love, which is a brilliant exploration of how we should all seek out and embrace moments of discomfort in our lives. Why? Well, as far as Caesar, and we tend to agree, these moments of discomfort might be painful at the time, but they make us more resilient, they increase our self-esteem and confidence, and ultimately result in us having more successful lives. Farah, we're absolutely thrilled to be here. Just as an aside for our listeners, Fenella and I realise that we're living our own brief moment of discomfort right now, what with this being our first ever podcast recording. So hopefully it will be a success for the success revolution. If not, hopefully we'll learn something in the process. Exactly. <laughs> the pain will get us somewhere. I feel strangely nervous. Do you? Yeah, I do. And I don't get nervous Embrace often, the nerves. So yeah. I'm embracing yes, it. And be motivated. Feeling, feeling. a new feeling of success. Obviously, this podcast is the success revolution, so we're going to get straight to it. We are on a mission to remarket the word success, because what we've noticed is that despite all of the career evolutions that have occurred in the last 10 years, we're more flexible, pay disparity is decreasing slowly but steadily, we still tend to define success in terms of power and in terms of money. With such an incredible job and your amazing new book, which we genuinely both loved, and having a voice that really matters and a speaking platform, do you feel successful? And how would you say that you define and measure success now? It's interesting, because I never really think in terms of success. And last year, weirdly, the guitarist from Blur, who I do not know, but I was listening to, was giving a talk, and somebody asked him about success. And he said something, and you know, sometimes when something bypasses your brain and it goes straight to your heart and you really connect with it and he said the thing about success is it always feels like you're never quite there and I was like god 
that's exactly what it feels like. And so success for me... Well, it's never been about money. And I mean, Alice, maybe you'll agree with this. Exactly. And I talk about this regularly. (laughs) That's it. So if I was motivated by money, I wouldn't be in this job. Success for me, I suppose, I was saying to someone the other day, for me, and this is an individual choice, because everyone's definition of success, of course, is different. But for me, it's like when I go home at the end of the day, and I'm lying in bed, and I feel like God, you know what? I really stretched myself today. I really achieved stuff. To have that feeling, which I don't think everybody has when they go home at the end of the night, for me personally, that is success. And so for me, when I think about success, I think about it on a daily basis. Was it a successful day? You can even think in terms of was it a successful hour? Mm. Because success is this big, all-encompassing idea. Am I successful? I don't think it's really helpful. I think it's a bit like mentors. I don't personally agree in mentors, but I agree in momentary mentors and that you get brief moments with them. And I kind of feel like that was success. So I might have a successful day today if I do this podcast and then I've got to talk after this, it'll be a successful day. So I look at it in small measurements. So success, actually, the way you're describing it, is almost being in some level of discomfort each for day. For me, yeah, for me, because it's about stretching yourself. And I've always felt that human beings are meant to carry a bit of a load. It's why I always talk about we see lottery winners when they've won millions. Their happiness really plateaus and sometimes they become depressed. And I do feel that challenge and being stretched enough where you feel a little bit uncomfortable is part of the human condition, I think, For me, stretching myself is part of being successful for me. And of course, it's not for everyone. But even my team, I always try and push them a little bit. And nine times out of ten, not always, but nine times out of ten, people enjoy being pushed a little bit into their discomfort zone. Because then you start to really get the measure of how successful you can be. And sometimes I think you amaze yourself at what you've got in your reserves. So then you think about... So you're defining success in a very granular way, which is really interesting because we yeah. actually don't discuss it in those terms, right. but that is really interesting. And also you discuss in your book about these brief moments of discomfort, BMDs. And I'm interested to ask why the B, why the brief moments? Because as you talk about your Oxford rejection that took right. years to get over, I know you wrote in, very movingly in the Saturday Times this weekend about your relationship with motherhood and your decision around that. Your success and your brief moments of discomfort can't always be brief. Would you disagree? And why the brevity? So brevity, I've always thought brevity is, even in writing, brevity is the best thing. And I think a lot of people don't give it credit. I think when I talk about brief moments of discomfort, it's like most people don't step into their discomfort zone because they think of discomfort as this huge monolithic the whole experience Mm. is really deeply uncomfortable and you're on the teeth of discomfort for the entire thing of course that's not true the truth of any situation is that there will be little pressure points so you could call them pressure points or crush points or I thought a lot about you know what do I call it and brief is a word that I like you know brief mentorships I like brevity in writing but most situations there will be and I usually think there's about three or four if there's any more than that then it's probably you're a little bit out of your depth but most difficult things whether it's public speaking or maybe it's taking on a big feature there'll be three things that you feel a little bit uncomfortable with and I always say All anybody wants in life is the illusion of control. Of course, ultimately, we don't have any control of our our lives, but you want the illusion of control. And so my thoughts are very much that if you can identify, and of course, you have to be very self-aware, if you can identify in any scary situation the bits that really, really frighten you, because there'll only be little bits, the whole thing won't. And if you can come up with a plan where you can control that fear, then everything in between is as easy as breathing and actually can become very enjoyable. You know, it's like I used to hate public speaking and it was 
was because I hated the bit when you go on stage and you've got to get everyone's attention and it's like, oh my God. But actually after that, it's just a conversation. So that's the brief. And also I think, you know, it's a word that people respond to nowadays. Nobody wants to think, you know, I was a sprinter, marathons and things, they didn't interest me. You know, brief just makes it sound more palatable because ultimately it is palatable. It is easy. So what, if you don't mind me asking, what are your current brief moments of discomfort? What are you managing, juggling at the moment that's painful or productively discomfortable? Do you know what? Every day is on Cosmo. So when I came into Cosmo, magazines, as you all know, they always had a voice, which was, this is the Cosmo voice, this is the glamour voice. And the rationale was that every magazine had its own voice. And my big thing was, was actually, no, you pay writers for their voice. And also in Cosmo, we often put in there voices which completely disagree with each other. And every single issue that I put to press, there will be two or three of them. I know full well, they'll be complaints. I mean, I get death threats, like this is only a recent thing. But the complaints I get every single month. And at the beginning, you have to decide really. It's like, do you want to create a product which ignites debate and conversation? And I think that is the job of journalists, actually, that really is. We don't have an agenda, but we put out the information to the world and they make their own decisions. But with that comes brief moments of discomfort where I'm putting the magazine to press. I mean, we had a piece in the issue that's just gone, which was about a lady discussing her rape. And it was a very unusual story because actually, and she said these words, she said, my rape was anticlimactic. And what she meant by that was she had a very difficult upbringing and she said when she was raped, of course, it was terrible. It was a dreadful thing. However, she dealt with it in her own way. She was at Columbia University. It was when she told the, in inverted commas, sisterhood what had happened to her, they said, you need to be a spokesperson now. And she made the individual decision that this is not for me. I don't want to talk about this. And she said they turned on her and actually them turning on her was in many ways more uncomfortable than the actual rape. Now, that is a story when we commissioned and work with this writer I felt very very nervous about it because I was like we will get complaints people interestingly we've had nothing but overwhelming support it's really interesting but that is as an editor what you have to do you have to put yourself out there I mean I don't even mind trolls people are totally allowed to have their opinion do you know what I mean we read that marketing book by Russell Brunson who helped us with some of our marketing and he says in there if you haven't pissed someone off by midday, you're not doing your job. I totally so agree. winning on that. You're I succeeding. agree. <laughs> yes, I agree. I'm just sitting listening in awe because I'm definitely someone who, I think probably more so out of the two of us, I'm very uncomfortable with confrontation and yeah. disagreement. And that's something that increasingly as you do things that are more public and you do things that are more controversial, and what we talk about isn't as controversial as that in any way, but it is definitely, what we say is not agreed with by everybody. It's something that I really, really struggle with. And I think that my feelings about discomfort in that context are that, you know, if somebody's really angry with me, then I haven't been successful, which of course rationally I know isn't true, but I feel that very deeply. And I think my experience of coaching with women we coach is that that's quite a common experience. So I'm quite interested in, did you always feel that way? Was that always your success or is that something you've taught yourself to do? And if so, how? I've taught myself to do it because I have always been a people pleaser. As a third child, I was a real good girl. And so 
I think it was when I became an editor, because I think what I decided was, it's like, and this sounds very grand and it is not supposed to, but it's like if you are a journalist in the truest sense of journalism, and actually I think journalists now really need to adhere to the roots of journalism more than ever, because in a world where everyone creates content, Mm. actually you've got to go back to what is journalism. And journalism usually attracts rebellious people, interestingly, of which I never was. But you have to have very strong beliefs and you have to stand by what you put out every month and so when I became an editor I had to make a decision when I got offered the editorship of Women's Health it's like do I want to be a writer and just write and get told what to do or do I want to and again this sounds grand but it's not supposed to try and enact a little bit of change you know women's magazines you know do insight change in their own way but in order to do that you have to facilitate difficult conversations you know if I just wrote nice pieces it's probably not going to make a dent in the world and you know our last cover for example overwhelmingly positive but a lot of negative or from our own readers as well people refusing to buy the magazine cancelling subscriptions but it's facilitated a much bigger conversation. And so, because I'm very clear on what my end game is, and for me at Cosmo, it's about free speech and it's about having discussions. And so that is greater than my fear of pissing people off. My lad swear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that is greater. <laughs> okay. And that's how, to go back to your friend Russell, yeah, you know, most people, the higher they get to the top, you do piss people off. You know. I think also it's interesting. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. Listen, thinking about you, Fan. I think as a journalist, you're very front-facing by nature of your job. I remember filing copy, even when I was just a work experience, and it was just a shitty little sidebar. But, you know, it's there, it's out. And first of all, you're going to get critiqued by your editor, and next you're going to know that everyone, including your mum and your mum's best friend and your great-aunt, are going to see it. And so I remember feeling very uncomfortable at the beginning, of, even though it was what I wanted to do. And I think it's a really sharp learning curve. And mm. then you reach somewhere where you probably are less affected by it, you know? I think you're right. And also, you're right. I think probably I think as a, a journalist, it, it is a gift. Because you get it from the beginning, you put your whole name yeah. on there. And so you have to stand by what you're writing. And that's why journalism attracts a certain type of person. But you're right, it's one of the only professions, isn't it, where whenever I put something in newspapers, people are yeah. allowed to say, what? ever they want especially now with comments yeah and people are like don't read below the line I kind of do read below the line because again I'm like that's fine if you don't agree with me or you know I don't have a problem with it interestingly I don't have a problem with the comments we've had some interesting comments yeah. below articles about us about the way we look and what kind yeah. of feedback what on our Instagram yeah, some lovely feedback yeah. yeah that doesn't bother me so much the thing that I found difficult and that we talk about you know getting comfortable with failure and how it's not dissimilar to what you talk about in the discomfort zone in terms of using that as a way of learning and following a kind of methodical process to teach yourself but I suppose I can deal with a failure and do that in a methodical way because I've been practicing doing that but the comfort with discomfort is still not there for me and it's practice isn't it it's like the book talks about um, talk us through your theory well one of the things is gut instinct and gut instinct of course it's not this weird woo woo thing it's pattern recognition and so it's like the more you throw yourselves into something so I always say to my team you know okay so you're scared of public speaking so let's break it down because you know there's so much science behind exposure therapy which is you expose yourself to the very thing that frightens you you don't Mm. coddle yourself you don't hide yourself away from it but you can expose yourself in lots of different ways so with my team 
if they're like, I'm scared of public speaking, which most people are, I'm like, okay, well, you do the next talk when it's someone's birthday, you do the small talk at the beginning, or the next time it's Christmas drinks with your family, you do the toast, and then you build it up and you build it up. And of course, even though once you get to the point where you're in an arena on a stage, it's a different situation, but the learnings are there. So I'm paraphrasing now, but I remember somebody, a lady in the book who's a very senior firefighter, she was like, it's better to do 20 different experiences in a year than it is 20 years experience of doing the same thing so you just have to keep throwing yourself into it unfortunately but you can do it in incremental stages and you will become comfortable with it you won't even realize actually it will just feel as as easy as breathing did I answer your question no I'm not sure you did actually (laughs) and I am interested to know which you have kind of talked about but I am interested to know how you got to thinking about writing the book from that angle so and actually while we were talking that just now there was an article today in the times about being comfortable and how it's so dangerous for students when they were talking specifically Mm. about students and how in America, Harvard and the other three amazing... um, All the Ivy Leagues. All the Ivy Leagues have just started new projects, one of which is called something around the word failure. The other one is the Perspective Project and it is encouraging, exactly like when we interviewed Elizabeth Farley, who's an amazing woman who is the founder of Tech Hub and they are an incubator for startups and they have what they call a failure funeral every month where they literally act out a funeral and one of the startups puts their failure to bed and it's this very public burial of the failure but it's a brilliant idea obviously and do they comb through it how yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. and they have flowers and a priest and everything but yeah no I am interested to understand why you came at it why you think now it's timely to talk about discomfort actually I write in the book about what the Ivy Leagues are doing with you're right you know they all have these projects now about embracing failure and I can't remember if it was Princeton or Harvard which you know you get this certificate yes yeah that's it brilliant yeah you can bomb out permission to bomb out do whatever however it's really interesting that these Ivy Leagues are doing it because they're also the campuses where you have the complete opposite side where you have the creation of these safe spaces over the last year and where you have students saying we're not giving a platform to this person I don't know how much people or your listeners will know about safe spaces but this idea of if students go into a lecture and I'll give you an example so the Great Gatsby is something I studied there is a sentence in the Great Gatsby where it is intimated that Myrtle is hit by one of the characters and it became a big storm because students said this is triggering we don't want this and so what is now happening on certain campuses in America it's happening here as well is there is the creation of these safe spaces where students are allowed if they don't agree or they don't like what they're being taught to remove themselves there are these biased response teams where lecturers can be investigated and these safe spaces there are pets in them there are cuddly toys there are this is not helpful to people this is a coddling of I mean there's a brilliant book if anyone's read it or not read it the coddling of the American mind and it's an academic and his point is and I totally get it it's like it is encouraging anxiety this is not helping people cositing themselves from the world it's like I think they had a quote in the book which was brilliant which is like you don't prepare the road for the kid you prepare the kid for the road Mm -hmm. that's life life is tough and and this is what the book is about of course but you are tougher than that and I always say to my team I can't make the world a safer place for you but I can make you tougher I think it's quite actually quite damaging to people's self-esteem to make them believe that they can't cope with hearing I would agree I read today actually in the newspaper that at Manchester University they're now banning clapping Mm -hmm. um, and they now will be doing sign language clap which you can't see what I'm doing but I'm I'm jazz jazz handing and that's because it may provoke anxiety 
anxiety in some people to hear clapping. I was looking at it on Twitter and there was a salient point that said, well, you know, and they were talking about inclusivity for people with anxiety right. um, and also for deaf people. But what about blind people? Because they can't see the jazz hands. And, you know, I think we get to a point where you can't be inclusive of everybody. Yeah. The world is not inclusive of everybody. Obviously, we should be striving for somewhere where people feel safe, in the important ways, but to tell people that they're not capable of listening to something or reading something, especially at is, universities, is, is so yeah, damn because you know it's so formative. And also, you know, the reality is whether we like it or not is a lot of those people through these, particularly these Ivy Leagues, these end up the head of Goldman Sachs. These end up the head of the New York Times. These are people that in 10, 20 years' time are going to be making massive cultural decisions. And so, if they have grown up in a time where they protect themselves from the world what's going to happen to the next generation coming through? So this is why I think the book, and there's a couple of books coming out which are similar to mine, we obviously all had the same idea at the same time, is that where we are heading, and these are my readers, millennials and iGen, where we're heading, I'm not sure it's the best place for them. I really don't. And it's through no fault of their own, actually, because in like the 80s, there was this big push, there was this thing called the Self-Esteem Team, which was created in California. And it was a chap who was running to be mayor of California and he needed a shtick. And he decided his whole campaign was going to be all you need to do in life to make people brilliant is you need to raise their self-esteem. And he came up, he got, I think, it may not have been the University of California, but anyway, he got a university to come up with all these studies to prove this. And it ignited, and basically, as you know, most of us will know, in the 80s and 90s, parents, through no fault of their own, were told, you've just got to tell kids they're amazing and they can do anything if they just want it enough. They then leave the parental home they get to the real world and then they're told they can be anything. And the reality is, of course, it's really bloody hard now. And so then the anxiety sets in. And then, of course, they go looking for, well, who's going to protect me? Who can help me? And I just don't... I mean, they call them Generation Snowflake. I always call them Generation Snowdrop, yeah, right. A, because I love gardening. But B, snowflakes are fragile and delicate. And I don't believe human beings really are. I think we're tough and we respond really well under pressure. And... It's like the world is not largely dangerous, but the world can be a hard place and you've got to prepare yourself for it in the best way you can. So the big idea of the book is that, really. I'm actually slightly changing the subject, I think, in a way, and picking up on something that you're talking about, which is parental expectation. Right. And thinking about success and coaching so many people, women and men, we know that that parental expectation is one of the things that has the biggest impact on yeah. not only our self-esteem, but also how we view success and how we view ourselves and so I know it's had a big impact I think on both of mm. us and both of our career paths. Parental expectation. Definitely. Yeah. Or lack of. Uh, yeah, or, yeah okay. in either sense. Interesting. And I'm really interested for example Cosmopolitan it was the first magazine I was saying to Alice before we met you Cosmopolitan was the first magazine that I ever bought and I think I must have stolen Aww. it from my mum and I went to a boarding school and I must have been about 11 or 12 and I had this Cosmo and I hid it in my cupboard and it was sim emblematic to me of womanhood because it was ballsy and sexy and cool and it talked about work and I used to want to be either the president of the United States of America I didn't have an American party you would have done a better job or, hey? yeah and maybe my accent <laughs> Would have been a slight problem, but in every other sense. Or the CEO of Pepsi Cola, that they were my That's dream. That's very ambition. specific. Yeah. So doing something like that, how much parental expectation was in there? How did that make you feel about what you wanted to do with your life? So I have an Asian father, so my anyone Asian listening to this will be laughing because they will know that parental expectation. So English mother, she was pretty ambitious for me because she'd worked her way up, you know, working class background, came a teacher, was very successful. But dad was doctor, lawyer, engineer, 
or failure. Like those are the options really available to you. And so I spent a lot of my childhood really worried, actually, because all of my siblings were the same because none of us were scientific. None of us wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. And we actually felt we couldn't do it. And I panicked about that. And that's why Oxford was so devastating for me, because I thought, well, if I can just get to Oxford, then it would be like a big tick for my dad. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I'm generalising here, but my experience of, from my Asian friends and Asian family, status is a really big thing and academic status is really important for all the right reasons because they want you to earn money and, you know, totally right. Journalism, therefore, doesn't really hold any. And it's a problem, actually, for the industry because whilst a lot of people are like, well, you need to encourage more diversity on your team, and I was like, absolutely, I completely agree. But then there's also a cultural thing, which is... Newspapers may be different, but magazines are not really seen as particularly academic. So whilst I always wanted to work on a magazine, I didn't think it was available to me. And I thought it would really disappoint my dad. I mean, I laugh now. I'm not entirely sure my dad still knows what yeah, I do well, for a living. I was thinking, well, how does your dad feel about your career and what you've done now? Well, I think, Alice, because I'm an editor, it means something yeah. now because you're the boss. And my sister, who was the dutiful sister, and she paved the way for me, she became a lawyer and she was utterly miserable and then she saw a competition in a magazine which is why I always put competitions in magazines be a writer write for Cosmo no one enters them so if you're listening can you please enter she entered a competition to win a date with a male model she won the competition came down to London the male model was fine but then she came back to Manchester and was like Farah you know there are jobs on magazines like there really are and then to cut a long story short a junior writer's job came up on more magazine I think the pay was like 11 grand a year she was on 24k a year in Manchester and she had to make a decision and she knew it would really disappoint my father and she did it within three years she then became editor of the magazine so I knew that because my sister had done that that actually if I could become an editor my dad would understand but yeah I mean is it damaging it's tricky I think parents try and do the best they can at the time and it certainly gave me my drive you know my father's ambition for me whilst in some ways you could say it was damaging but I wouldn't say it was it gave me drive so I'm you're proving that you can make it yeah. in this industry as well and that's it, you know, magazines, if anyone ever says, on oh, magazines, it's just light, silly stuff. I'm like, have you seen what's in there? It's not blowjob tips. It really isn't. It was always a magazine about career, actually, before anything. And the sex just, you know, it's like if you're a career girl with your own money and you're a successful woman, part of success is you can have sex on your terms. But it became well, something you else. You can have sex in your office. <laughs> you can't wear I don't think you can anymore. I don't no, I don't think you can. Office, <laughs> just um, I've got two questions, one really small and one more probing what does your sister do now she's very successful author she writes bonk busters and she writes thrillers so she's a writer as well and my brother works in tv so there was a create it's really interesting it's completely creative so your dad slightly didn't read his family i think he was like just do what you got to do and that is important as well because i think you know i always say we never had kids in the end but i remember my husband who didn't go to university and was a complete reprobate when we were thinking that we might have children of course it didn't happen in the end but at the beginning when we were thinking about it I said to Will it'd be really good if they go to Oxford and he's like no 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 no, Farah he's like these are your ambitions you cannot impose them he's like if this kid it loves drawing or loves writing we're going to give them crayons and I think this is someone said to me this is what Eaton is so brilliant at is that they find what you're amazing at and they just make you brilliant at that and of course we didn't have kids in the end but it really changed something for me, which is I think you do it without realising you impose your ambitions yeah, on other people and you need to take a step back and go, what's the brilliance in them? And then let's just hammer that. Let's just make it work. 
So that was my short question. My slightly bigger, more probing question is around gender. You're obviously a woman who edits a big female magazine that stands for important female issues and talks about them often, as you've already covered. And marrying that or talking in parallel around the modern kind of feminist movement that we are obviously all feminists and it means something exciting and brilliant today and you can be a feminist in a very everyday sense and that's something that excites us and definitely is a kind of landscape against which we work. Would you say that your book is aimed more at women? The reason I'm asking that is not because of who you are, but because what we tend to find when we're talking to women and coaching women is that the mind game, the internal ticker tape, we call it, which is obviously so much a part of your discomfort theory, which is managing your thoughts, essentially, Mm. and managing your expectations or your fears around something is more of a female trait than a male trait, I don't know if we're discrediting men there. Would you say that this, therefore, is kind of aimed at women more? And do you expect more women to buy it? And do you see it as a kind of your part or a feminist stance or stand personally in terms of writing? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, with feminism? Because when you ask people, actually, it can mean completely different things to different people. And my big thing has always been you just are a feminist, you just believe in equality. And so for me, a big thing, which one thing I always make a point of is that Cosmo is a place for blokes as well. We have quite, interestingly, we have quite big male readership as well. I have male voices in the magazine because you've got to bring them along with you. You know, you can't have a conversation where you're just going, you're a man, you don't get to have a say in this. Again, looking 10 years in the future, it's not good to keep them out of the loop. There are a lot of really good guys. So to answer your question, men can absolutely take something from this book, but this is really a book for women, yes. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, it's funny, isn't it, that we have to use this language of I might be discrediting this person, and I feel the same, and I always have to say when I'm talking about female and male traits, generally speaking... I'm a pragmatist, I think, rather than an idealist. And I think this book, because someone said to me, so, you know, this book, it's about telling people to be tougher and, and actually, some could say, behave more like a well, man. we discussed that. Right. When we were thinking about yeah, kind it's of like, what we wanted to talk about. Yeah, and it's, also it's male it behaviour. potentially leads to a male definition of success. It's like keep right. being discomfortable to keep, keep progressing. Keep moving upwards. upwards. Right. And is that, and yeah, we were interested to talk to you about yeah, that. Yeah, and so it's not something that was ever in my head, but when I look back and thought about it, and actually I did a, a talk on this, which is the big question for feminism, I think, is, and this goes, you know, when you look at the gender pay gap, is generally speaking, there are some things that women are better at. So we have more empathy, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. We communicate better. So all those industries that we are drawn towards, and some men are, teaching, caring professions, you should be paying those better. You know, that is the thing. You should be rewarding those people. So is my book about telling them to be more like a man? I wouldn't say no. However, when I started my career, I would say I was a softer person. I would just say, I mean, I actually wouldn't know it now, but I was quite an introvert. I mean, I'm still not good with lots of noise and lots of people. However, and this is the pragmatist in me rather than the idealist, I did notice that it was not getting me anywhere. And that is the reality. And this goes back to preparing the kid for the road rather than road for the kid, is that I found being quiet and being, you know, what I was naturally like wasn't really getting me anywhere. And unfortunately, and I'm not saying this is right, when I started to speak up more, and which terrified me, that's when I started to see I was moving up. And this is a shame. And this is why, actually, this is going to be a massive change. It's that you need leaders who understand. I mean, 
it's interesting, I have in my office two brilliant, brilliant women. One is a massive extrovert, and I would say displays more masculine characteristics. So she'll go into a room, she's really ballsy. Have another lady who is an introvert and would, generally speaking, display more feminine. So she's great talking to people. I promoted both of those people. So you need leaders that understand you need both of those things. But the reality is, and you all know from working in the city, the way the world works is, unfortunately, and I think it will change, you know, books like Quiet, which says introverts are really important, softer natured people are so essential to your bottom line as well. But the reality is you still have to push a bit. And so my thing to women is, it's like, look, I'm not saying it's right. But what I have discovered is, unfortunately, sometimes you have to shout the loudest and it's not in your nature. You don't like to do it, but you have to. And by doing that, what happens is you get to the top. And then when you get to the top, you can then make the change for other people. You can let in people who are quieter, who don't display these characteristics. But it's a long game. But would you say you get to the top? And I mean, you got to the top, but then maybe for someone else, there's like a plateau point. Because I'm interested to ask about like where comfort comes in the kind of formula. So you've got the discomfort, but equally you need the comfortable times to be able to maybe, you know, have clarity of thought, be more peaceful as a person and intersperse those with that. So what about for women who don't aspire to get to the top? They aspire for something more nuanced in their definition. Is it about kind of accepting that there'll still be those moments of discomfort, but not taking the advice from the book that's like, I must push ahead Yeah, I mean, the book is a career book. The book is very much a career book for young millennial, for my readers, really. It's really for them. It's young, young 20-something, early 30-something women who are like, I want to get to the next step in my career. Mm, But, you know, brief moments of discomfort, and it would have been a much, much bigger book. You can apply it to anything. And that's why you have to know what your definition of success is, because it's totally different to everyone. The only thing I will say, I was talking to someone this morning, and she was like, well, your definition of success might be sitting on a chaise long for days on end. It might be. Again, it goes back to what I'm saying. Success is so fleeting that I don't think you should pursue success. I think every day there should be little bits of success. But totally, this is a career book for young women, women in their 30s as well. But you can apply brief moments of discomfort to anything, to exercising, to your relationship. It's about difficult situations that ordinarily you might go, I'm going to walk away from this one. You can apply it. And are you good at being comfortable? Are you good at having moments no, of comfort? No, no, I'm not. And you know what? I had an executive coach for like, it was a friend. And that was one of the things she identified. She was like, where's the comfort? And I was like, well, the comfort's in my writing. And she's like, no, 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 that's not comfort. And so interestingly, now, finally, in the last year, I have found my comfort. And this is comfort for me. Some people go, well, that's not comfort, but it's gardening. And gardening works for me because I know, what do I like? Well, I like the struggle. I like the fight. I like making things and then moving on to the next thing. And gardening, for me... That's what it is. And it's really good because you have to have patience. You have to get comfortable with, you know, when weeds are growing everywhere, you've got to be really comfortable with that. So that weirdly, and people think I'm insane, has changed my life a lot, gardening. So is your sequel going to be the comfort zone? (laughs) Might be the gardening zone. You read them in conjunctions that have like a black cover. I'm thinking, I'm visualising it now. But I mean, you know, it is a kind of valid point. You read the discomfort zone and then actually you almost need 
to read the comfort zone and be like, you need the yin with your yang. Yes. That's, you that's sort of how we were. We yeah. push ourselves out of our comfort zone for a period and we launch something new. We both love new things. And then we, like, and then we say, to okay, that was too much, that was too much. Yeah. Let's retreat. Yeah. Let's retreat for a few weeks yeah. and do yeah. and, and go for a long walk. And yeah. then we yeah. kind of emerge again. And I think yeah. that's the reality of life, is, isn't it? Yeah, it's I mean, look, my, my weekend is we deliberately moved to the country because I was working like a crazy person. I need to find some balance. And so it's quite extreme but we moved to the country I live in a field with sheep I have two dogs and my husband and I just walk and garden and that's my comfort and it goes back to being the introvert it's the solitude Mm -hmm. so I can take it all in of everything that's gone on Monday to Friday so I think finally at almost 40 years of age I think I've got the yin and the yang finally takes a long time and you do have comfort so when you said earlier I don't have comfort. You do, but maybe you just don't think about it in those probably, terms. Probably, probably, yeah. And it's probably I think so. important to think about it in those terms when you're talking about discomfort because actually you need both and one enriches the other and the other That's one it. allows for the other. That's it. I, and I think you're right. I think, you know, if the whole of life was discomfort, it'd be pretty bloody relentless. Mm-hmm. I just tend to think that most people are pretty good at knowing what's comfortable and it's the uncomfortable bits that they're not so mm-hmm. sure of how to deal with. But yeah, of course, you've got to have both. But I've struggled to find it. But finally, I'm here. I've got it. I think that's until the gardening book comes out. (laughs) That one is going to be comfort via gardening zone. Well, thank you so much for that. That was brilliantly interesting, and I think perfectly kicks off our success revolution podcast because you have your own unique definition of success, and that really is what we want to chat about. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully, everyone listening to this and us as well are inspired to go out and push themselves yeah. out of their discomfort zone really, really enjoyable yes yes um, so we were we were discomfortable but it turned no, out to be brilliant and we will go and have some comfort later yeah. Farah's book The Discomfort Zone yes is out now thank Great. you Farah thanks for having me thank you if you enjoyed the podcast and it sparked some thoughts about your success please don't forget to leave us a review wherever you're listening Farah's book The Discomfort Zone is out now Again, all the information is in the show notes and don't forget to sign up to our free weekly career advice newsletter at stepupclub.co. See you next week, same time, same place. We've got plenty of incredible women, each with her own definition of success up our sleeves.